0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. It is time for a Tech Stuff classic episode. This episode originally published on December 15th, 2014. It is titled, Taking a Ride in an Ambulance. Firefighting equipment is talked about ad nauseum in public forums, and fancy new medical equipment sometimes gets the spotlight. But what about the ambulance? I'll admit that until recently, they hadn't changed significantly since the 1970s when they were modified from being inspired from hearses, the only vehicle designed for a passenger lying down at the time. However, now ambulances range from the massive bariatric trucks to the new Mercedes Sprinter that have mixed reviews to work in to the Volvo car-based ambulances Europe is experimenting with. It has taken nearly half a century, but the humble ambulance is beginning to see some innovations, including the introduction of safety features, watch ambulance crash tests on YouTube, efficiency and tech to save lives. I'm certainly biased being a volunteer medic and having many paramedic friends, but maybe you, Scott or Ben and the Tech Stuff audience could find it an interesting topic to dive into.
1: Take care, Lee. Yeah, now, you know, I recognize Lee's name, and I think this is such a fantastic suggestion. Uh Scott and I have been doing Car Stuff for quite a while, um, not quite as long as Tech Stuff, which is one of the original three podcasts we ever started making, but... Uh, we have this moment, which I'm, I'm sure you've encountered, too, Jonathan, where you're looking back over a list of all the stuff you've done. And you right. get, And you go, wait, uh, we haven't done this one. Well, really? Uh, heck, I
0: went to howstuffworks.com, typed mm-hmm. in ambulance. Can't believe we don't have how ambulances work.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, now we are verging on the very first official explanation of how ambulances work ever yeah ever not
0: not just for how stuff works i'm saying like no one has taken the time to actually explain this until this moment <laughs> right which so, might be hyperbole
1: scoot to the edge of your uh seats um or you know if you're driving i guess uh stay focused on the road right because <laughs> uh it's rule number one that's rule number one of course now we looked into um we looked into some surprising twists and turns about the story of the ambulance. And one of the things that a lot of people don't really think about is that the ambulance itself predates the automobile.
0: Yeah, in fact, ambulance can apply to lots of different types of vehicles. And uh, to really understand the, the importance and the place of the ambulance, you kind of got to look back into history. And uh, the word itself, ambulance, comes from the Latin word ambulare, or ambulare, if you prefer. (laughs) I don't don't speak Latin, so. Uh, But that means to move about. And the earliest ambulances weren't really about necessarily getting sick or injured people to medical treatment. Uh, They were more about moving them away from the healthy people by force. So kind of like a prison bus for sick people. Now, there there were different kinds, right? You had you had the military type, which was all about retrieving injured soldiers and moving them out of the field of battle. Uh, But then you also had the type that were in more populated like urban areas mm-hmm. some of the growing cities and that was more about this person over here doesn't seem to be acting properly let's get this person away from everybody else before it spreads
1: yeah let's put you on the plague cart yeah uh, and it could have been the plague it could have been mental illness Yep, Me- medicine wasn't quite where it was could have been your neighbors are just a bunch of jerks uh-huh they all it-
0: claim that you are sick down with the sickness
1: or you're a lycanthrope or something yeah (laughs) yeah
0: yeah you got that that werewolfism but uh if you look at the the development of emergency response you'll see that it is in fact closely tied to warfare again not a big surprise um during the roman era you would have teams of soldiers that would carry away the injured on litters Uh, that would be like a uh a device that would be not quite a cart. <laughs> right. It's kind of uh, hooked up usually to an animal of some sort, and it carries you at an incline. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the other end of it drags on the ground often. It's not the most comfortable way to move around. Or they might use stretchers. They would actually receive compensation for each wounded soldier returned safely.
1: Which is uh, interesting when you think about uh, working on commission. It's, it's probably one of the most efficient, although soulless ways to ensure that uh, they maximize their efficiency right
0: yeah yeah it was really and this was something that was common throughout the ancient to medieval era of uh, warfare was that there would be a reward given for the return of wounded soldiers because often in this era you had at the end of the battle one side whichever side was you know less worse off (laughs) because i don't know that you could call anyone a winner really right but whichever side quote-unquote won the the battle would end up taking prisoners Mm -hmm. and then ransoming them off so being able to uh be removed from the field of battle when you're no longer able to fight without being captured by the enemy was a big deal uh so the knights of saint john uh, aka the knights of malta or the Knights Hospitalier Mm -hmm. were charged with the purpose to care for the poor, the injured, and the sick back in the 11th century. Uh, They were formed about the same time as the Knights Templar, because this is all during the time of the Crusades. Right. Now, the reason I bring up the Knights of St. John is because they were very much involved in the retrieval of wounded soldiers during battle. Uh, And when the Knights Templar were officially dissolved in 1312, Uh, Much of the wealth that they owned, and there was a lot of it, went to the Knights of St. John. And the order itself divided into two branches. One of them became a military order, similar to the Knights Templar, Mm -hmm. and the other one continued to care for the sick and injured. Now, one of those two branches no longer exists
1: Right. Right. Can you guess which one? Uh The military order. I'm going to. That's that's an
0: excellent guess. And you are correct, sir.
1: Thank you. I am a bit of an armchair guesser. One thing that is interesting about this before we move on, however, with the Knights of St. John, is that I believe and I may be incorrect here, but I believe this was one of the first organizations, at least in the West, that would care for people regardless of which side that's they were correct.
0: on, that's correct they would uh they would retrieve soldiers wounded from any side of a battle and treat them uh there the maltese cross also eventually uh evolved into the red cross uh also just random trivia here one of my distant relatives used to rule malta so <laughs> what yeah
1: <laughs> wait when baron strickland are, are, are you serious? I
0: am absolutely serious.
1: OK, is this um, could you give me some time and space context? Are we talking like 1970s? Are we no, talking no like we're 1400s? talking early, early 20th century, ni-
0: early 1900s, 1930, I think, 37, maybe. Uh, yeah, his his um, his governing of Malta was not without political issues political and religious issues. That's all I can really say about that without turning this podcast into something completely unrelated to ambulance. <laughs> okay,
1: but for the record, I think people probably want to hear that story. I know I do. So we can uh talk about it off the air since it doesn't sound like the controversy <laughs> was ambulance related. No, it wasn't. It wasn't.
0: Uh so the Spanish now, moving on from from the uh, 11th to 14th centuries, they began to use wagons to transport people in need of emergency medical care back in 1487. That's uh, during the whole, uh, like, we're getting into Ferdinand and Isabella time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also introduced field hospitals, which were called ambulancias. So that was the that referred to the field hospital, not the wagon. Mm-hmm. Now, these field hospitals were tents that had medical and surgical supplies in them, but they were very rarely used. It was hard to actually get soldiers to where they needed to be. These wagons were not terribly maneuverable. Right. And it wouldn't really be until the 1700s, 300 years later that you would actually see wounded soldiers receiving treatment in field hospitals or be carried away by an emergency vehicle on a regular basis.
1: And that still wasn't perfect, right? Like a lot of people died on the way to or from. Oh, yeah. No, if you
0: look at if you look at casualty records, uh, one of the many reasons why researching this was getting to me today. But if you look at casualty records, it's a pretty grim story. Mm. So you see the number of people who were uh, outright killed, and then you see the number of people who... Were retrieved by uh, the 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 folks manning the ambulances, the wagons, mm-hmm. um, and you hear about their casualty rates, and they were extreme. I mean, it was it was not good news. If you were wounded in battle, uh, for a very very long time, the prevailing wisdom was let them let, let them die. <laughs> right. I mean, Unless, it really was. Yeah.
1: Unless you're a higher order officer of some sort. It's, right. Yeah. It's it's tricky when we think about. Um, when we think about those attrition rates, especially when we consider a very sad fact, which I'm sure you ran across as well, uh, which is, ladies and gentlemen, the people who were picked for the medical retrieval teams were not the crack, uh, soldiers. They weren't the smartest. They weren't no. the fastest. They were
0: considered to be the ones who are least likely to actually kill the enemy. Therefore, let's go ahead and put them in charge of this wagon for all the soldiers who've been wounded.
1: Right. They were considered the grade B fighters. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it. It it was they were not picked for their ability to actually retrieve people. They were picked because they were least likely to be useful on the front lines.
1: Right. Yeah. Um,
0: And speaking of front lines, that was part of the problem. Like these wagons were actually usually located at the back of the army and they were very heavy. They were very cumbersome. So it took so much time and effort to maneuver them that often soldiers were dying on the battlefield before they'd ever have a chance to be rescued, let alone uh, incur any problems along the way. So this was a a big issue until a French surgeon named Dominique Jean Lery designed a lightweight two-wheeled wagon to create a faster response vehicle. And they were called flying ambulances. And it's not because they could fly through the air, because they couldn't. Oh. Uh, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off there, Ben. No, no. Uh, no. but they were often stationed with the flying artillery, which also could not fly. Oh. Yeah. Sorry.
1: This is just a bummer across the board.
0: Well, uh, they, they're called flying artillery because they were very light artillery that would be towed by horses to their location. So they could, they could relocate relatively quickly as mm. opposed to field artillery, which was so heavy and cumbersome that you planted it and you didn't move it you know you're, until the battle's over it's staying right there so uh they they would be stationed with the flying artillery so these are both horse cavalry type units they normally be cavalry support
1: and that changes fundamentally changes somebody's odds of living or surviving a war wound oh
0: yeah yeah there it's a huge improvement some people were suggesting that it was an improvement as much as 60% wow that that, that you know you had a 70% Uh, rate of casualty that was being reduced to 10 percent because of this now that was someone who was writing in support of funding more of these kind of wagons so i doubt that it was based on any empirical research (laughs) more on more on the idea of think how many lives we could save which still is a noble effort Mm -hmm. i mean you know if you have to fudge a few numbers but uh, some hospitals at this time, such as the Staffordshire General Infirmary, started to employ their own ambulances. So now we start seeing ambulances in the civilian life, not just in in warfare. And these were still wagons pulled by horses. Uh, the Staffordshire's wagon was described as, quote, a carriage hung upon strings to be drawn by one or more horses for the conveyance of the sick or maimed, end quote. And by the close of the 18th century, Organized ambulance service was starting to grow in Europe.
1: In Europe only. Europe, yes. Yeah. The
0: United States was not so quick to adopt this. Ambulance service was practically absent during the beginning of the American Civil War, which, if you guys aren't familiar, uh, a lot of our listeners are from outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. The American Civil War began in 1860, early 1861, and uh, you don't have any mention of ambulances in those early in those early accounts.
1: Right, yeah, and this was um one of the bloodiest battles, right, that people remember in the United States. Yeah. yeah. And uh some of the casualties in one of the battles, the Battle of Bull Run, we're just saying this for an example, instead of ta- having an ambulance anywhere near, they they walked 27 miles after they were wounded. Right. To get some sort of treatment if they survived. Uh that's part of why there was such a horrific attrition rate in this or casualty rate rather. Yeah. In this um in this conflict. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not only do you have Americans versus Americans, so I mean, no matter what, the casualty is an American. Mm-hmm. There's that. Mm-hmm. Uh but then you also had just these the, the you had no preparedness. You had no ability to to help the people, the soldiers who had fallen. And so, again, it was one of those situations where if you fell in battle, if you were wounded, you know, people often would just treat you as if you had died. Um, It was only after the appointment of Dr. Jonathan Letterman to the post of Surgeon General of the Army of the Potomac Medical Department. And this is where we mentioned the post of Surgeon General of the United States had not been invented yet. There There were Surgeon Generals in the armed forces. And this is not the Surgeon General of the Army overall, mm-hmm. as a different different post. But he uh, organized soldiers into response teams to carry wounded to a site where they then could be transported to field hospitals or even further on into general hospitals. In fact, they had sort of a, a primary response site where mm-hmm. the anything uh, immediate would be attended to. The soldiers would then be carried off to a field hospital at the field hospital, they would then determine whether or not to treat the soldier there or to, to transport him further to the general hospital. So it was a much more kind of chain of command organized approach. Then William A. Hammond, who became surgeon general of the U.S. Army in 1862. So the overall army, a uh, standardized ambulance response and also demanded that hospitals be clean establishments, which was before back the, we knew about bacteria. So his theory was that the clean establishments would save more lives, though he didn't have, you know, like a scientific reason to point to, right? Because we hadn't discovered bacteria yet, but it turns out he was right. And, um, and so his, his approach ended up saving a lot of lives. He also demanded that there be one ambulance for every 150 soldiers serving in the U.S. Army. And he got it,
1: which is pretty hardcore. If you think about it back then, because if we're talking about these response teams, mm-hmm. right, then we're talking about a cost benefit analysis of things that are pretty expensive in war, which is training time and cavalry. Yep. So, uh, he, yeah, yeah, he, you're pretty you're, persuasive.
0: You're talking about not just money, but actual people and mm-hmm. animals, resources that could be dedicated to inflicting casualties upon the enemy, enemy. You'll notice that I haven't really talked about the Confederates. There's <laughs> right. a reason for that. They just, they, they were not nearly as, as organized as the, uh, as the Union was during mm. the Civil War when it came to things like treating soldiers. Uh, just watch the documentary film Gone with the Wind. Uh. <laughs> Don't I mean, you can watch it. It's not a documentary, obviously. So in 1864, Congress passes the Ambulance Corps Act, which established a standardized system of ambulances in the United States. Now, these ambulances had distinct labels to designate them as such. And then the Geneva Convention of 1864 went further and adopted the Red Cross as the international symbol for emergency medical responders which were to be treated as neutral parties.
1: One thing that is just fantastic about this is that this is, um, and maybe it's a bit of hyperbole on my part, Jonathan, but this is one of the biggest steps, I think, for uh, the human species at large. We mm. actually took... The idea of the Knights of St. John, which which wasn't I mean, let's be honest, if it's during the Crusades, they weren't always saving everybody. Sure. there was a lot of othering going on, I'm sure. I'm sure. But the the Red Cross as this international, neutral, um, benevolent force that somehow must have been a great day in 1864 when they all agreed to let that slide. That's amazing to me. I just wanted to stop and say, you know, good for us people
0: gosh yeah i mean it, it's it's also a little one of those weird things to think about the idea of we all agree that these people are not okay to shoot at but these other people are totally okay to shoot at yeah. this this is where my pacifism comes in yeah yeah right where i'm just like i don't i don't get okay whatever so um uh, at any rate mm-hmm. it is it is a great testament that we we're able to come to this agreement and by and large, people follow it because, you know, it's it's it applies to everyone. It's not something where uh, only that side gets to have the benefit of medical treatment. It's, right. it's this this international uh, initiative. So in 1865, the commercial hospital in Cincinnati is the first one in the United States to have a hospital based ambulance service. Uh, Bellevue Hospital would follow in 1869. Oh, fun fact. Uh,
1: yeah. This is something car stuff listeners will enjoy. Usually, uh, we do a, a an inflation calculator that okay, Scott sure. always does, but I'll, uh, Lee, you probably recognize this, but I'll fill in since uh, Scott is occupied at the moment. So that, uh, Ambulance driver in 1865 there in Cincinnati would make about $360 a year in, uh, you know, 1865 dollars in 2014. Jonathan, uh, this is more than, uh, you would think, but still not that much. It's about $5,230 a year, a year. Wow. Yeah. Whole year.
0: Got to cut back on my Xbox consumption.
1: <laughs> That's probably what he was thinking, yeah. <laughs> right before he said, "What's an Xbox?" Right,
0: right, <laughs> right before they called the second ambulance driver to pick him up because he was talking about things that made no sense back in eighteen sixty-five. And now we're finally getting to
1: automotive, automotives, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The eighteen ninety-nine, we get the first motorized ambulance uh, in Chicago. It was actually, uh, from what I understand, five hundred different businessmen over in Chicago. Uh, donated money mm-hmm. so that this ambulance could become a reality. And so it was a motorized ambulance that was donated to Michael Reese Hospital. And its top speed was a blistering 16 miles per hour, which still, when you think about it, when you have a reliable 16 miles per hour and it's a device that doesn't get tired, it, it can run out of juice, but it doesn't mm. get exhausted. Um, that's a big deal. Uh, the, now, the next year, New York's St. Vincent Hospital would get its own motorized ambulance, uh, its horseless carriage ambulance. (laughs) Yeah. And these were uh, interesting. They were not gasoline-powered vehicles. These were, and and Ben, you know this because you've covered car stuff for so Mm. long. They were electric vehicles vehicles the electric vehicle predates the internal combustion engine
1: yes and that story is actually so interesting that we're going to have to table it for another episode because you and i could go off for 20 minutes about that but that is something that uh people need to know and i know it sounds hard to believe but uh jonathan you are spot on the first cars were electric
0: yeah yeah you wouldn't think of it now because whenever you see any sort of advertisement for an electric vehicle It's treating it like it's a it's it's a brand new idea but this is actually older than the gasoline powered cars Mm -hmm. where we've been relying on for a century at any rate uh these electrical engine ambulances they had a maximum travel distance of between 20 to 30 miles which Which is pretty good yeah you're talking about a city right you're not talking about driving from one city to the next you're talking about an ambulance that would go out from a hospital to a specific location within a city pick up somebody and bring it back so uh, bring him or her back and uh, the doctor in the back of the ambulance, because they actually would allow a medical practitioner to go along, could communicate with the driver in the front through a speaking tube.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love the I love that note you have about the speaking tube. Yeah. I wish we still had those at cars. That sounds so much more fun than an intercom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> be careful going around the corner. See? <laughs> yeah. Okay, obviously, that that. Uh, Brain stuff episode about old timey voices has stuck in my head. I, yeah. I Keep falling into it.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um, so here we are. Uh, we're approaching the 20th century.
0: Yeah. We're in the 20th century.
1: We're in the 20th century. That's yeah. right. We're early on in it. Yeah. Right? Cause, cause New
0: York's got theirs in 1900. I guess if you want to be technical, 1901 is
1: into the 20th century. I'm not going to be that guy. You're not going
0: to be that guy. Okay. No. Well, early in the 20th century, Major Pal- uh, Palisade of the canadian army introduced the first gasoline powered ambulance so the canadians got it
1: first and everyone went my word
0: (laughs) or they went a a yeah one of those (laughs) uh at any rate uh it it makes sense canada gets pretty cold and we'll talk a little bit about fuel types when we get further Mm -hmm. into the discussion so Mm -hmm. using gasoline made some sense the first mass-produced ambulance came from a company that sold hearses just like lee was mentioning hearses were vehicles that you know were designed to have a person laid out in the back and so a patient who's suffering from some sort of injury or illness may feel more comfortable laying down than sitting up and so the this company was called james cunningham son and company and they they had a really interesting design in fact they were very uh advanced mm-hmm. in automobile technology compared to their their uh the other cars that were on the road at the time so yeah again early 20th century and you end up getting this uh this machine that has a cot in the back of it and it had its own suspension so the cot had its suspension independent of the vehicle which allowed the passenger the the patient to remain more comfortable they didn't feel all the bumps that the the Ambulance is driving
1: over. That can also prevent further injury, too, in the case of, you know, um, a compound break or sure. a possible punctured lung. Something yeah, like that. yeah.
0: It's very important in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ambulance itself also had pneumatic tires, which was unusual at the time. Most vehicles had solid tires. It wasn't until later that uh, pneumatic tires became kind of standard. And these obviously also allowed for a much smoother, gentler ride than, uh, a, a solid rubber tire. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Uh, it had to be pretty rough. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have a siren. Uh, That's my favorite part. Ambulance didn't have a siren. Yes. They had a gong mounted on the side of the ambulance.
1: No, can we get a, can we get a gong noise?
0: Perfect. Some, someone <laughs> must have, someone must have fallen down and broken a leg or something.
1: Uh, yeah. So they used
0: that in order to, again, same reason that, that ambulances have sirens to alert people that an ambulance was coming through so that they could make way and allow the ambulance to get to where it needed to be. It's Jonathan from 2021. There's no emergency here. We're just going to take a break from riding in an ambulance, and we'll be right back.
1: Going on to the earlier point that you made, which I which I think is so profound and cannot be overemphasized. Uh, so many of the innovations in both performance and safety in autom- automobiles today come from two places, racing or war. Yeah. And it's weird when you think about it, because war still has, um, I, I would almost say, an even bigger part to play in the growth of the ambulance. Right. Oh,
0: sure. Because for one thing, you had a stay supply of people who needed them. So, I mean, you know, just from that, but but it is you're you're making an interesting point here that both racing and war really drive innovation. Uh One in the sense I didn't, mean, didn't mean to use a pun. <laughs> I, that one was not intentional. I I usually go out of my way for these. Uh No, but they really do because you have uh, racing where there's a lot of money involved. You want to be able to uh to get as much money as you can if you're if you're running a racing team and you want your drivers to be safe because they're the ones earning you the money. Mm-hmm. And so you end up coming up with these innovative ways of keeping your drivers safe which later get trickled down into other vehicles because their their efficacy is proven. And then war obviously you have the incentive to try and keep as many of your men alive as possible inflicting as much damage on the enemy as possible. And that requires lots of innovation. So that brings us to World War One, a terrible war, 1914 to 1918. And this saw motorized vehicles serve as ambulances. But there were still a lot of horse-drawn ambulances at the same time. This is a moment of transition when the automobile hasn't had universal acceptance or it's not universally available Mm -hmm. and uh, early versions of ambulances were just converted buses or parisian taxis (laughs) they took taxis out of paris and turned them into ambulances so when the united states entered the war the americans brought along the model t ford to serve as ambulances these were actually modified model t fords they Mm -hmm. were uh had a had a wider carriage to be able to accept a person laying down um higher suspension yeah higher suspension yeah and uh, they could travel at speeds up to 45 miles per hour, and they could go across much more rough terrain than your average uh, wagon could. And uh, there were some experiments with airlifting patients, not using airplanes or helicopters, but hot air balloons.
1: Mm-hmm. This is
0: crazy. Actually, one the first one I read about was in the Crimean War, but there was also some in the in World War One. And one of the methods I saw had a stretcher suspended beneath a balloon, so the balloon floats in the air, carries the 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 stretcher and you think, how on earth is the patient supposed to get to any place meaningful as opposed to just getting away? Right. And uh, it was because there'd be a horse that would be tethered to the stretcher and the horse would, you know, trot along to wherever it was supposed to go. I I assume there was also a rider (laughs) that would go to the nearest hospital and it would tow the balloon to the hospital and thus you would be able to bring the patient back down
1: to earth. If they were not shot from the sky, I mean it's an innovative idea. Yeah, but uh, you you know it's not it's not perfect. It's a jumping off point, right? Right. Yeah, or a falling down. Plane. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I so have
0: done that <laughs> post World War II. All right. So World War II, obviously, more developments in the ambulance. By mm. then, we had really switched to automobiles. But post World War Two, you also saw urban growth exploding and it meant that we needed more ambulance services. So you have a lot more areas like, you know, there were cities like London and Paris that had been huge for for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. But in general, we started to see more of a move from agriculture to urban environments. Uh, this is the same time as we're starting to see like uh, some some really big developments in uh, industry that's just pushing people toward that. And so it meant that we had a larger need for ambulance services in cities, and that need was starting to be met by various approaches. Again, many of these ambulances were converted hearses, but these didn't have a lot of room for an attendant. You couldn't really have a medical professional in the back who could easily attend to any person. You essentially were just moving the injured person to a hospital. So the standard thinking was that treatment would begin once he got to the hospital.
1: Right. Yeah. And now, of course, if you have ever been in an ambulance, seen one or just even watched TV, mm-hmm. you know, that treatment begins the moment EMS arrives. But up until this point, there wasn't really an EMS thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This was again, it was
0: one of those ideas where the people who were best qualified to treat the patient were all at the hospital mm-hmm. or or urgent care center or whatever, something along those lines. And the idea was you had to get the patient to that person. There wasn't so much of an idea of having medically trained people go out to see the patient and attend to the patient while they are being transported back to a hospital or other facility. And it wasn't until the 1950s that we really see that birth of the emergency medical services movement. And this is where we would see people who were trained in medical emergency uh, techniques to... Mm -hmm. Try and go out and treat people and give them a better chance of recovery or survival, even mm-hmm. depending on the uh, the nature of the illness or injury,
1: yeah, and we know that this eventually leads to um, leads to more improvements in the typical ambulance because also the as strange as this sounds uh the ambulances that were used before this time didn't necessarily have medical equipment on board right yeah it was
0: essentially a moving bed yeah i mean that's really what it got boils down to is that uh you know again a lot of the the ambulances were just meant to allow people to take a wounded or sick person to the hospital that's it
1: but it changed once we started getting uh medical professionals on board
0: yeah and in 1965 there was the accidental death and disability paper, which I think was actually published in 66, written in 65, published in 66. Mm-hmm. And it called for a new type of ambulance to provide space for the, not just the patient, but also an attendant and equipment. The idea here being we can treat this person as soon as we're able to make contact with them, as soon as we get to where they are. We, treatment can begin at that moment. There's no need to put it off until they are at the hospital. That too many lives are being lost, too many, or even if the life isn't lost, the quality of life declines sharply if they aren't able to re- receive help mm-hmm. as early as possible. So the 1973 EMS Systems Act required that communities receiving federal funds for their programs had to have ambulances that met federal specifications, which included things like, uh, their, you know, crash test rating right. or, uh, having, um, ABS or, you know, other elements as well. Even
1: down to like the um, frequency of maintenance. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. You had to be able to meet these qualifications in order for you to receive that funding. Otherwise, you could have the funding cut off. Hmm. Uh, there are three types of chassis that were uh, established by this. And those three types are still the types we we refer to today. So you've got type one, which uses a small truck body with a modular component in the back. Type 2, which is, I think, the most prevalent type here in the United States, at least. Mm -hmm. It has a van body with a raised roof. And Type 3 has a van chassis, but with a modular component in the back.
1: And in the United States, these will all have uh, something called the Star of Life. We've all seen this. It's a blue uh six pointed star uh with the with the rod in the middle right and the the snake on it you yep. know the whole nine uh this was originally designed by the uh u s national traffic safety administration and it's kind of like a it's weird because it's it's trademarked by them but it's kind of like a mark of a- authenticity for e m s vehicles and for ambulances um Or, and even, you know, of course you see a paramedic, they will usually have that somewhere on their, on their body. And this, (laughs) you'll see on our notes here, I had this as we could skip this, but it's interesting. Yeah, let's keep it. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, the next time you look at one of these six pointed stars on the side of an ambulance or a paramedic, it looks
0: uh, almost like an asterisk.
1: It pretty, it looks way more like an asterisk than it does like a star. Yeah. You know, uh, because it has, it has flat ends. So it's more like three bars laid over one another. Yeah. Each of these projecting points stands for one of the things that emergency services do. Uh, there's detection, reporting, response, on-scene care, care in transit, and then transfer to definitive care. And to me, that's interesting because I always wonder about the logic behind a logo, you -hmm. know, um, where, where, cause everybody who makes one of these has a story. Sure. Like the red cross, right. Right. St. John. Yeah. You
0: don't, you don't typically when you're making a logo, you don't want it to, to, you want it to have some sort of significance Mm -hmm. for whatever it is you're doing. Right. You want, you want it to tell its own story so that not only do people recognize it as your logo, but they at least get that there's some sort of significance to it.
1: I always, I feel so dumb because Jonathan, I always assumed that they just stuck a logo on there because they said, "Hey, you know what? Let's let people know this is an ambulance." Well, to be <laughs> fair, Ben, that could
0: be the answer, and it could be that these six points were retroconned, you know, doing. Oh, totally,
1: a, yeah, you totally. Know, you,
0: just, you know, retcon the whole thing. But uh, I thought it was really interesting. It also makes me think that if if you're hurt and a van pulls up and it doesn't have this mark on it. Don't get into the van. I thought the same
1: thing. Yeah, it's the
0: first thing that uh, that occurred to me when you were talking mm-hmm. about this.
1: No, we we named the three types right that they have yeah. there, but uh, ambulances, as we established at the top, don't have to necessarily be um, a car
0: or automobile. Yeah, they they can be, and in fact, I'd say the vast majority of them are. Yeah, but they can also be boats or helicopters, fixed wing aircraft. Uh, or even other vehicles and emergency ambulances are, you know, the the ones that we think of. That's the most common type. The emergency ambulance is the type that has a medical professional in it, um, at least one, usually two, mm-hmm. uh, and that can treat you on the way to a, a medical facility like a hospital. But there are other types of, of ambulances as well, like charity ambulances, mm-hmm. which technically what they do is they transport patients to some other location for. You know, maybe an outing. So think of like a children's hospital where there's an uh, organized trip to take children from the children's hospital to some location like a zoo or essentially what is, is similar to a field trip. So there are other ambulances as well that are designed to carry patients or to get medical professionals to patients. Mm-hmm. But emergency ambulances are the ones we're focusing on because those are the ones that I think most people, when they hear the word ambulance, that's what they're thinking about.
1: Right. And even more specifically, uh, we're talking about the van based ones because there's a very interesting story about how these are created.
0: Yeah, it takes a. Uh... It takes a village or or at least two different manufacturers (laughs) in general. So you may think, like, well, where do ambulances come from? Who makes them? Like, what what car company makes them? And Mm -hmm. there's no single answer for that, in fact. There are lots of different car companies that make the chassis that Mm -hmm. uh, end up being used as ambulances. And then you have other manufacturers that are not the big car companies. That make the various compartments, like the actual, you know, maybe the modular components in some cases or in other cases, they get they get possession of the chassis that was manufactured by the first company. Mm. And then they put in all the stuff like the the fittings the medical equipment all the kind of thing that right. actually makes it an ambulance
1: the tech that we'll we'll talk about in just a bit and then they're also the second manufacturer is typically the one who has to build to that federal code
0: yes yeah they build out that whole interior they have to meet the code and the chassis obviously has to meet the the requirements of things like the crash tests right but the uh, the rest of it also has to meet those same requirements so it's interesting that you wouldn't say, you know, because you think of you think of vehicles usually as a single manufacturer. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. That's a Dodge such and such, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas Dodge does make the chassis for some ambulances, but it's not like you can't say the ambulance is a blank vehicle. It's a type of vehicle, just like a van is a type of vehicle or a sedan is a type of vehicle.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And they're so, so varied uh, in terms of just size, type, shape. Function. It, it really reminds me of limousines, actually. Yeah, because a lot of limos are uh, custom uh, custom coach jobs, too. That's what it's called when a manufacturer is building something uh, to specification rather than to um, production numbers. Sure. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we know also that this even goes down to... Uh, oh, this is a point you made earlier. This even comes down to what sort of fuel they use.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, because... If you are in a cold area, then you may not want to use diesel fuel. See, diesel is often used in the warmer climates. It's, it's often thought of as being more efficient and also safer mm-hmm. because, uh, in, if you are responding to, let's say a fire, then a gasoline powered vehicle is considered to be dangerous because gasoline is very, very
1: flammable. Oh, diesel,
0: not as much. So right. yeah. So, so diesel vehicles are often used. Um, in warmer climates, but in cold climates, diesel engines take time to warm up mm-hmm. to, to actually work. Uh, anyone who's operated a diesel vehicle up in the Great White North knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> so uh they often will use gasoline powered vehicles instead. Uh You might find gasoline powered vehicles in warmer climates too it kind of just depends upon whatever the company that's running the ambulance has
1: ordered right there are quite a few companies and uh partially or wholly state-owned enterprises uh the more and more we learn about ambulances the more we learn that while they all have the same aim for the most part they have uh that there are myriad ways to get there and uh One great note about the diesel fuel, right, is, of course, you can't use a fuel, no matter how efficient it is. You can't use a fuel that will slow you down in these situations. Right. I mean, you can't even really stop for traffic lights or anything, which is why you have those famous ambulance sirens and lights. What's interesting to me is that
0: the very first motorized ambulances had these electric lights that were mounted on the outside to Mm. help people be alerted to the fact that there was an ambulance coming through. I think it was the New York one that had the first ones. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of cool. Now, sirens came a little later, but uh, this is one of those things that we see common across emergency response vehicles, whether it's police, ambulance, fire yeah. uh, engines, etc. And obviously they all have the same uh, need or the, the same aim, which is to alert people. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, there we have got someplace we have got to be very quickly. People's lives depend on it. Please move out of the way. And so uh, obviously, uh, if you're in the United States, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pull over to the side of the road and stop your vehicle. Right. Not crawl along. You stop. (laughs) You allow the emergency vehicles to pass and then you can resume normal operation. Uh, So those lights and sirens, uh, it's interesting. You know, you've probably wondered. I, I, I actually had a conversation about this with friends of mine not too long ago. Uh, about if you hear a siren going off, you see the lights going off, you wonder, is there someone in that vehicle, like a patient? Is there a patient in that vehicle, or are they on their way
1: Yeah. to get a patient? How can you tell?
0: Well, uh, you can't really tell except to say that statistically speaking, it's far more likely, if the siren is on and the lights are going, that there is not a patient in the back. Generally speaking, the the rules say, and the rules, by the way, they vary from region to region, but generally speaking, the rules say that if you are on your way to try and, and respond to someone who has need of an ambulance, that's when you use the lights and the sirens in order to get to where you need to go as quickly as possible uh, okay. while treating the patient in order not to put place more stress on the patient and also not to put more stress on the driver who needs to make sure they get to the hospital safely. They often will not use the lights or sirens unless the patient is in a critical state where they absolutely need to be able to get to health care oh. like a hospital as soon as possible.
1: You know, that makes sense because I, I was having a conversation, probably not with the same people. <laughs> I was having this conversation. Were
0: you in that same group? Were, <laughs> just, was that one of those moments where we just refused to acknowledge each other's existence?
1: I mean, it happens. It happens. Yeah. We spend a lot of time hanging out. Uh, there are ups and downs, but no, uh, this is strange because I, I had a conversation that dovetailed with this, which was uh, one of my friends complaining about, Seen an ambulance, uh, she maintained that it had its lights on just to get through an intersection and then it stopped, it turned them off. Or, um, she said she had seen police officers do this as well. But I think my position in this was that we don't know what's going on in the vehicle. We don't know what orders they're receiving. So let's, Try not to be too judgmental if we see an ambulance, you know, appear to flick its lights erratically or something like that because, you know, they may have had their call canceled. Somebody else may have picked it up. And, uh, for Pete's sake, EMTs are not paid enough. Well, I don't care what anyone says. And,
0: and it's quite possible that they have a patient That's in the true. back because uh, one of the times they can use their lights and sirens, you know, outside of, of when they're uh, trying to get to a patient is whenever they are going to use any moving privilege. Hmm. That's what you were talking about a second ago. Moving privilege is the uh, privilege that emergency vehicles have to go through things like stop signs, red lights. Um, go, go into opposing traffic, you know, things that you are really not supposed to do. Emergency vehicles can do under special situations. And in those situations, that's, they are required actually to run the lights and siren Mm -hmm. because they have to alert the traffic that normally would be going through that intersection or going that opposite way of travel that they are coming through. And it's quite possible that, you know, it's, again, in order to get a patient to the hospital. And it may be that the patients, um, uh, their state is such that they need to get there soon. They're not so critical that they need to be running the siren and lights the entire time, but they need to get through this intersection. They can't stop for traffic.
1: I have a question for you at the end of this regarding regarding this very point, but we'll we'll hold it there. Um, I I think you already pointed out that when New York... Launched this, uh, this motorized ambulance or excuse me, not motorized, their first ambulance system. Right. Uh, that horse drawn cart going at its uh, bustle, blistering four miles per hour needed <laughs> some lights to let everybody know. Um, <clears throat> there were also not any federal standards for light based ambulance alerts for a very long time. So there's all of this customization and variation. Um, you know, if you've ever heard a siren, you hear that it always has. At least two tones, usually right, and, and,
0: it, and it oscillates between the two. Right, yeah. and you
1: know why that is too, because the uh, the sound there makes it easier to hear if it's coming toward you, it's going away. Right,
0: uh, yeah, you've yeah. got the Doppler effect where mm-hmm. if it's coming toward you, it's a higher pitched, and as it's going away, it's a lower pitch. But either way. You identify that as the sound of an emergency vehicle, right? And yes,
1: and uh, also this this variation though means that ambulances would have different sounds or different colors of light for such a long time. Such a long time, in fact, in this irritates the heck out of me, that it is still a patchwork, at least in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, state by state, right? Uh, for instance, in Minnesota, you can only use blue lights on a vehicle if it's a snowplow or road maintenance uh, setup. Huh. But, but in Illinois, yeah. uh, all the medical or fire emergency vehicles have to use blue Uh, So these things go state by state and the rules for one ambulance may not apply in the next state over.
0: So if I see flashing lights as I go state by state, I, I won't necessarily be able to say with any authority, oh, that's got to be a blank because. The regulations in that state could be different, where the the light color could mean a completely – it's a snow plow, <laughs> yeah. which I would already be confused because we don't have those here in Atlanta. Oh, come so. on. We
1: have three. Yeah, we do have three. We, but is I, it three? Do we buy a new one yet?
0: No, nah, I think we really just have two.
1: <laughs> I think we really do only have two. Oh, boy. But uh,
0: we have several several salt
1: trucks, though. Oh, good. Bully for us. Yeah. Uh, so part of the reason you guys are probably asking yourselves, Jonathan, Ben, if it's been so long, uh, why isn't there a better uniform rule for ambulances? Well, part of the problem is uh, there's um, there's a scientific debate going on. People are trying to figure out how to hit the balance of the right color, sound and frequency of siren uh, such that they can alert drivers without distracting them and causing more accidents, right? right?
0: Yeah. One thing you don't want to do when you are designing your emergency medical response uh, strategy
1: is to create more emergencies. Right. To have some kind of klaxon that just uh, makes people's teeth vibrate. Right. And they peel yeah. off if, the if the
0: jelly in your eyes starts to, to solidify, then that's clearly <laughs> not, what you wanted in your emergency response vehicle.
1: Mm-hmm. And so until there's more, uh, until there's a, a larger body of research behind this, uh, people are very, very hesitant to try to translate good intentions into policy. Um, and, and you know, there are researchers who are working at this, like, uh, Michael Flanagan at the university of Michigan, uh, but, or at their transportation research Institute, excuse me, mm-hmm. Dr. Flanagan. And, uh, what we're hoping for is that at some point, the sooner the better, there will be some kind of uniform code. But also at this point, kind of roped into it because uh, so many states and so many private and publicly owned ambulance companies have already invested so much money. in Sure. Their, their they, one have a, system. they have
0: a fleet of vehicles that are already designed as you would have to retrofit all these vehicles. Not that That wouldn't be a a worthwhile endeavor, Mm -hmm. but that costs money. And, you know, the when you get down to it, when we talk about businesses that provide ambulance service, it's a business. We'll get into that in a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about what happens uh, when someone does call for an ambulance. Like, what's the process? Mm -hmm. And we're going to go through the whole 911 route because that's a very, very common one here. Um, if it's, if you're in the UK, it's 0118999. I don't remember that episode of the IT crowd. Um, but nine, one, one. So if you were to dial nine, one, one, or mm-hmm. I believe nine, nine, nine in the UK, the way it works is operators will dispatch an ambulance according to zones. So what, wherever you are, you know, you've called in the, the ambulance. Sure. Uh, they will look at the zone that you are in. It'll mm-hmm. correspond to whatever, you know, address you gave. And then they will look at the ambulances that are available in that zone. There, there are companies that are responsible for specific zones within a
1: region. Okay. So they have turf.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've got an ambulance team that is employed at least in part by some company. Uh, the, the company runs the ambulance fleet and they are responsible for a given area within a region. And they get that call. Then the ambulance team itself typically includes, uh, in the United States at least, one paramedic and one emergency medical technician, or EMT. Now, I say this, but keep in mind that these terms aren't universal. It's not like there's a definition of what one is, and and that applies across the entire world. I see, yeah. Uh, In the United States, there's actually two different levels of EMT. There's basic and intermediate, and then Mm. you have paramedic. Uh, and you might be confused. You might wonder what's the difference between the two. I, I certainly was. I'm not well versed in this, so the I name
1: sounds similar. Yeah,
0: so I emergency medical technician, paramedic. You might not even know just on hearing those two. If you aren't in the medical field, you might not know which of those two uh, is allowed to do more uh, extensive medical procedures. Uh, so the answer to that is the paramedic paramedics have to complete between twelve hundred and eighteen hundred hours of training compared to EMTs who have to do around one hundred twenty to one
1: hundred fifty hours. Whoa, that is a huge disparity.
0: Yeah, well, and it's because, again, the nature of the work that each person can do on a patient. But you, I need to stress both of these both of these types of careers require attendance to lectures, hands on training I mean, uh, I don't I do not wish at all to disparage EMTs because no, they do no. amazing work yeah. and they they have to go through a lot of training in order to do it. So, uh, in fact, EMTs have to have to be able to demonstrate life saving skills, including CPR, administering oxygen, administering glucose for diabetics. Uh, they are not, though, in general, at least, allowed to provide treatments that break the skin. So no needles are allowed with a couple of exceptions, things like. Severe asthma attacks or uh, an al- allergic reaction, okay. those can be allowed because I, I have severe allergies.
1: That's true. I was just about to. It
0: gets to a point that. where I cannot swallow a pill. All right. Mm-hmm. So I have to have an injection. Uh, I am personally thankful that that is an exception to that rule. We're going to take another quick break, but we will be back in just a moment.
1: So what do uh, paramedics do then? So
0: they're advanced emergency medical care providers. They build on those EMT skills with even more uh, skills and more tasks that they can do, such as administering medicine or starting an IV line in the back of an ambulance. So they're allowed to use needles. Uh, They they are trained in that. They're allowed to administer medication to a patient. Usually the medications, we'll talk about all the equipment on there, but I might as well mention it here. Medications that are Usually uh, included in an ambulance are the ones needed for those emergency responses. It's the most common type of medications that are needed for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Epinephrine would be a big one, for example. That makes sense. Um, but uh, and, you know, you have to be really careful, obviously, because sometimes those medications include things like narcotics. So uh, ambulance teams are are responsible for the inventory inside their vehicles. Which means that if you find out that you have a shortage of narcotics in your vehicle, you have some serious explaining to do. I mean, they have a huge amount of accountability in that department.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Understandably so. How, speaking of accountability, how long does it take them to respond to a call?
0: Okay. Well, that's a great question. Again, it varies region by region. I thought I would pick one of the most famously congested areas in the United States. The, uh, the city known for the worst traffic in the U.S., Los Angeles. Oh. Uh, Los Angeles, I believe, takes number one. If, if not, it's at least culturally referred to as <laughs> the worst traffic in the U.S. Atlanta's pretty bad, but L.A.'s worse. Uh, so Los Angeles, an ambulance is supposed to be able to get to a patient within eight minutes, 59 seconds of receiving the, the call from the 911 dispatcher. So just a hair under nine minutes. That's how long they have to get to the the person.
1: That's impressive. Yeah, it's
0: it's pretty, pretty fast, uh, considering, again, that this is a major sprawling city. Now, granted, again, that's why they divide them up into zones, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you just had the entire city as the place where you worked, then you might take an hour to get to somebody. And that's not acceptable.
1: And, uh, they may not always be going to the closest hospital, right?
0: Yeah. If you've ever seen an ambulance that has its sirens on, its lights on, or maybe, maybe it doesn't, but you just see them driving with purpose. Like it's clear they're, they're making their way someplace and they're driving past a hospital. You might ask yourself, well, why aren't they going into that hospital? And right. it's because the team has to weigh the patient's, uh, the nature of the patient's problem mm-hmm. with the various locations that are nearby. So they may not go to the closest hospital if that hospital is not well equipped to handle certain kinds of medical emergencies. Mm-hmm. So for example, if there's a hospital that has a really good uh, cardiac arrest uh, uh, response team, and it's a little further away than the hospital that's closer in, but doesn't really have that, that equipment that team. Yeah, yeah. Then the ambulance can go to that other hospital. By the way, you can ask, the ambulance drivers to take you to a specific hospital. Mm-hmm. If you want to, you can say, I want to go to this particular hospital. You can do that. However, that ambulance team may or may not fulfill your request. It'll depend on how far away that hospital is that if that hospital is way outside the ambulance team's zone, mm-hmm. then they say, listen, we're going to have to take you to this other place. It's closer. They are well-equipped to deal with your, your emergency. And, uh and we just, we, we can't, go that far to take you to this other place right
1: and a lot of our more cynical listeners might be saying well yeah of course they're going to take you the farthest hospital away so they can rack up the bill but that's not that's not how it works they don't run a meter right they're not it's not an uber yeah or or a a taxi cab yeah Yeah. so
0: but but your trips can cost a pretty penny i mean Mm -hmm. like they can rate they can go up way above a thousand dollars for a single trip uh, 1200, 1400, it's not unusual. Uh, now typically insurance will end up paying for ambulance services, depending as long as the, the, the hit is, uh, determined that it was merited, mm-hmm. right? If you stub your toe and you call an ambulance and you ride in the ambulance and they say, yeah, you stubbed your toe, you know, in a day, it's going to feel better. You can bet that insurance is not going to cover that particular expense.
1: Right. Cause it wasn't life threatening. Here's, okay. Here's the thing. Let's do this instead okay. of a stub, stub toe situation. Let's go hypothetical. All right. Hit uh, me. All right. Don't, so don't really hit me. I won't really hit you. Okay. So Jonathan, here's yes. what happened. You were at work uh-huh. and, uh, someone, I, I won't name a coworker, but Josh sh- Clark. Okay. So Josh had convinced been. Become convinced that our office was haunted and he invited a ghost hunter. This is like last week. <laughs> yeah. And after you got so irritated. Gotcha. Cause the ghost
0: hunter is actually in our office. Right, right, right. And right. the fact that the ghost hunter one exists and two is in my fra- field of vision.
1: Oh, and is hunting, is hunting, and hunting the ghost. a ghost in our office. Right, right. And so you get so infuriated. I'm getting there now. <laughs> that you, uh, that you, um, Kick like a baseboard. All right. And so yeah. you've got a broken foot. Yeah, but it's like seriously broken. They haul you call 911. Let's say they're in there in like five minutes. We're rushing you downstairs. Uh You're still cursing at the ghost hunter. Yeah. <laughs> and uh they hop you onto the ambulance. What do you see when you get inside? What's the gear? Okay. I like that That was the setup that's the whole me, what the setup. inside of the ambulance
0: looks like. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay, well I'm glad you asked, Ben. Uh all right. So your typical ambulance has a gurney in it. That's the um that's the cot that's usually on wheels that, that, that with the legs that extend out. So mm-hmm. when you pull the gurney out from the back of the ambulance, the legs extend. You can then wheel the gurney to the patient, put the patient on, and then when you wheel it back in, the you can let the legs contract and push the gurney back in so it lays flat or flat ish against the, the floor of the ambulance compartment.
1: Yeah, that's great. The uh
0: the the paramedic will get in the back of the ambulance with you. Uh there is actually a bench usually in most of these van ambulances where typically uh they're used if you ever have to transport two people at the same time, although most ambulance crews will do their best to avoid that Mm -hmm. because it divides the attention of the medical personnel, really. And they can't guarantee that each person's going to get the best uh, response. So normally you want to send as many ambulances as you have people who who need them,
1: which is why you'll see multiple ambulances on a scene. Yeah.
0: Now, occasionally that, you know, what is ideal and what is real don't match up and you have to transport two people at the same Mm -hmm. time. And that's why there's a bench in there as well. Uh, you will also start seeing lots of equipment. Some of it you might not see because it's stowed away. Uh, ambulances are kind of like I think of it like the International Space Station. Right. Nice. You have you have very limited space mm-hmm. and you want to carry as much life saving equipment as you possibly can. Stuff that you might need in any given medical emergency. And there are. Tons of different medical emergencies. Right. So you've got a lot of different potential stuff to carry with you. It's kind of like playing Dungeons and Dragons. You're like, I want to have every possible thing that my character might need on any given adventure. And then you're told, yes, but you have to worry about weight and encumbrance. Mm -hmm. And you think, why can't I just have a magical bag of holding thing that makes everything (laughs) ambulances don't have a bag of holding? So you have to put all that stuff someplace. Mm -hmm. So. Pretty much every square inch of that interior is holding some equipment or or uh, equipment is hanging off of a hook. It all depends on what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But that equipment is pretty much what you would find in a standard emergency room with a couple of exceptions. There's no X-ray machine. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't really fit, you know, making everyone put on lead Right. driving down at 45 miles per hour. Um, there's also no lab, so they can't run any tests or anything. They can just respond to, to things that are, are, uh, apparent.
1: Okay. Yeah. So then that would be stuff that will, that will just give you a quick, a quick look at what you need to do immediately to the patient.
0: Yeah. So it's, again, you're trying to stabilize the patient as much as possible so that you can get the patient to hospital care where a more detailed analysis can take Mm -hmm. place. So if we're talking in the case of illness, as opposed to a broken foot, Then that would mean they would treat any symptoms that were life threatening, but otherwise not really mess with the patient too much because they can't they can't determine exactly what's wrong. Right.
1: right? And it's kind of pointless at this stage in technology to have a lab on a on on a vehicle like this because labs wouldn't work quickly enough.
0: No, you you would get to the hospital faster than you would receive any unless you're just like tooling around town, which seems like a, a. pretty you know inappropriate use of resources to me
1: (laughs) right but they they do have other stuff they do have
0: diagnostic equipment like uh blood pressure cuffs you know things that being able to take a patient's vitals quickly are that's important so stethoscope that sort of stuff they also have monitoring equipment like a cardiac monitor to track a patient's heartbeat uh clearly important especially if the patient has um suffered a a heart attack cardiac arrest Mm -hmm. something like that Uh, They have response equipment. So this is the stuff that they use to respond to emergency situations. So if you were to go into cardiac arrest, they have a defibrillator so they can do the whole clear Mm -hmm. thing. You know, you've seen it a billion times in movies uh, to try and zap your heart back into, into action. Uh, They also have bandages and gauze for treating wounds. Uh, They have, you know, like the, the stretcher board, the solid stretcher board. You've Mm -hmm. probably seen these. These are, those are meant to immobilize a patient. So if a patient, has suffered like a back injury or right. a broken limb that needs to be immobilized. They can use that. They also have splints, including uh, inflatable splints. A lot of times where, cause those don't take up a lot of space when they're not inflated. Right. Right. So then you put them around the wound, you, you inflate them and they, they, de- they, they, they stabilize the limb so that you're not able to, uh, further injure yourself. Um, that includes neck injuries, limb injuries, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, then they also have airway equipment specifically to help patients who are having trouble breathing or perhaps are, are simply having respiratory distress. Uh, like someone who maybe was in a building that caught fire, they didn't suffer any burns, but they may have suffered smoke inhalation.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. You
0: know, this would be something used for them. So these are usually tools that either help a patient breathe or will breathe for a patient. Uh, that includes oxygen tanks. So those will be. In the back of an ambulance as well. Probably won't be needed for my broken foot. Um, <laughs> I think if they were it depends to, on how angry you if are. If they were to administer oxygen, things have
1: gone well beyond the broken foot problem. You probably also won't need this next thing.
0: Uh, not the OB kit. No, <laughs> no. Unless my broken foot has broken the rules of of God and man, where suddenly I've become incredibly pregnant. No, the OB kit is. For for uh, ambulance teams that have to do an emergency delivery mm-hmm. and, and by emergency delivery, I'm talking about a, a person. <laughs> so. Right. So let's say that an ambulance, you know, uh, an expectant mother calls an ambulance because uh, her uh, she has no one to take her to the hospital. She can't take herself.
1: Sure. The then, baby was born early or there's some kind of weird uh, pain. or she,
0: Yeah. She's she's going into labor unexpectedly, whatever, whatever the reason. Uh, ambulance crews carry OB kits. And that contains all the supplies that an ambulance uh, like a paramedic would need in order to deliver a baby on the move if the baby has decided that the baby's not going to wait. And so it involves uh, things like latex gloves, gauze, umbilical clamps, scalpel, uh, towels, like all the sort of stuff is in your mm-hmm. typical OB kit. I actually looked this up online. I was looking at a company that sells the equipment to ambulances. And I, I looked, I was like, huh, OB kit. Inquire. I'm like, I'm curious to find out what's in this. That's how I know, because uh, this is in a world that is far removed from me.
1: The Eagle Scout. Me wants to buy one and just have it in my car. Yeah, but I know I will totally just lose my marbles if I'm ever in that situation. I would just,
0: I would just, I would give you three days before you get so bored that you start using the umbilical clamps for something incredibly inappropriate.
1: You're right. I have a child's attention span. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned medication yep. too.
0: Yep. So that includes things like uh, antihistamines, epinephrine. Uh, anything that could be used for treating life-threatening injuries or illnesses, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff is going to be there. Uh, there's, you know, most of these medications are given intravenously, which is why you need a paramedic. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're using an IV. Uh, so there's also IV equipment and needles and things like that on board an ambulance.
1: So there'd be the EMT driving while yeah. the paramedic is, yeah. is doing the treatment. Uh,
0: and some companies, some companies, it all depends, again, on the region, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the United States. I'm talking about globally here. Some companies have ambulance drivers who are not medically rated at all. They might have a a, uh, first aid certificate, but their purpose is to drive the vehicle.
1: They're just awesome drivers.
0: Yeah. Uh, And in other places, the person who's behind the wheel is fully qualified to treat emergency medical situations. It all depends upon the area.
1: So how do they talk to
0: each other? Well, uh, they don't shout because that would be disturbing to the patient. <laughs> right. They use radio these days. We don't, we no longer have the talking tubes, sadly. That's a bummer. We now use radio. So now we do breaker breaker stuff. Um, but yeah, it's a two way radio communication that you can use. Also that radio can, uh, uh, usually be used to contact hospitals to let a hospital know the nature of the patient. Um, you know, whether it's an injury or illness or whatever, uh, and they can get more direction from the hospital that way. That makes sense. Like if they get a information from the hospital that the hospital is completely overwhelmed by some other terrible thing that's happened, then the ambulance can reroute and go to a different facility if necessary. So it's a really important tool. In fact, there's some ambulances that have computer systems on board that also do this, where they're tied into an overall network of computers to help keep track of not just what that ambulance is doing, but what other ambulances and hospitals are doing in order to give the best chance for that patient
1: possible. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so that's that's your communication. You also uh, you want to know how long you might have to do this if you're if you're working in on an ambulance team. Yeah, but
1: I'm, I'm already pretty intimidated. Let, yeah. Lay it on me.
0: OK, so I watched a video where they said, yeah, you know, your average ambulance team works anywhere between eight and 24 hours in a row.
1: Man, I hope you don't break that hypothetical foot on hour twenty three.
0: Yeah, no joke. Uh, he was also talking about how there are, you know, obviously different facilities for ambulances. Some hospitals have, uh, like, essentially a holding area, kind of mm-hmm. like a garage. Yeah, and uh, and there you could get out of your ambulance and and relax as much as you can while on the job sure. uh, before you go on call. But other ambulance teams, their their office is their car. Their vehicle, they're inside the cab for uh, the, the guy who did the video. He did it for 12 hours Wow! at a time. That was how long his shift was. So for 12 hours, when he wasn't actively helping a patient, he was sitting in the passenger side of an ambulance.
1: I just have every day. such immense respect for people who do that. And, and we know that this is not the end. Ambulance technology is continues as we record this podcast
0: yeah uh i wish i could tell you that there's a ton of super cool like groundbreaking tech but a lot of this is again because we're talking about stuff that has to be proven to be helpful
1: mm-hmm. it's a
0: slow kind of a slow evolution because we need to make sure that they work you don't want to employ a technology or technique simply because it's new without first knowing that it's helpful Right. right. Yeah. Like if, if we were to do otherwise, then we could potentially negatively impact patients. And mm-hmm. that's the last thing you want to do. But some of the things that have been incorporated over the past few years are howler sirens, which are they complement the regular ambulance siren. They don't replace it. But this is a lower frequency sound that penetrates further and is supposed to help uh, alert drivers uh, on the road that an ambulance is approaching. To me, uh, I, I listened to a few cause I was like, I, I, don't know if I've heard this or not. And I have heard it before, but to me, depending on the video, it sounds kind of like the old Pac-Man eating pellets. Uh, cause it, it is a, it's essentially that, that same undulating frequency, but now it's a lower pitch than the other one. And again, it's underneath the regular siren. So you hear both at the same time.
1: Uh, that was a pretty good impression. Also. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I, I played a lot of Pac-Man when I was a kid. <laughs> and also, it, it is low enough frequency where you can actually
1: feel those vibrations. Oh, that's probably huge. Yeah.
0: So the idea being that even if you don't, if you don't actively register it as you know hearing it, you mm. feel it, and so that alerts you that there's an ambulance coming. Um, and they say that you can feel the pressure from those sound waves if you're within 200 feet of the ambulance. Some of the ambulances around the world are being fitted with closed circuit television cameras internally and externally. The internal ones are meant partially. As protection for ambulance crews. Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh there's there's always the potential that you could be accused of malpractice. And they they're meant to help maintain a a level of accountability as well as protection for ambulance crews to say, Well, we reviewed the the footage mm-hmm. and they did exactly what they were supposed to do, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's gotta be huge. I'm a I'm a I'm an advocate of that kind of monitoring. Yeah. As creepy as it might sound to some people, if we we're talking about firefighters, police officers, mm-hmm. EMS, anybody who's in a situation where they're dealing with the public, uh, then you have to have some kind of way to establish a firm, inarguable record.
0: Yeah, exactly. You never know who you're dealing with. You you either have to be able to say this person who we put into a position of trust violated that trust and mm-hmm. therefore we need to react appropriately or you need to be able to say the person who we put in this position did exactly what they were supposed to do and mm-hmm. this is what shows us so another the external ones are meant in order to try and keep an eye on things that might be volatile situations like let's say that there's a riot going on okay in a city yeah. like here in the united states we occasionally have them for things as silly as a sports victory Right. And that may mean that someone ends up being injured in the process and you have to send them out. But you would also want to be careful because people are not acting rationally.
1: Right. Or so, Yeah. Attempted ambulance theft is another surprise. That's another one. one. Yeah, yeah. Actually. And
0: well, when you remember that there are lots of medications mm-hmm. in that ambulance, you could understand that there are some some temptations for people to try and steal them. So these externally mounted cameras are meant to be both a deterrent and also just uh, an aid to the people inside the ambulance to keep an eye on how things are going to make sure that they stay safe, not just the patient, but the ambulance uh, um, employees as well. Then you have uh, also aboard. board. Uh, you get, we're seeing air filtration systems being installed. Uh, this is not necessarily new. Again, in fact, most ambulances have climate control that's separate in the ambulance compartment from the cab. So you have two different climate control systems. And part of that is to make sure that any pathogens that are coming from the the patient don't get passed on into the cab and, and, uh, um, you know, infect Mm. the person driving the vehicle as well. So it's to try and keep them safe. Um, And some also have data recording systems that keep track of the vehicle's speed, that's braking, its position. It's kind of like the black box on an airplane.
1: An interesting fact for that, uh, in the United States, the federal government has passed some regulations requiring something like a black box to be in most automobiles. Mm-hmm. So it's not just an ambulance that has this. And while a lot of people have these uh, Orwellian objections to it, I just want to point out that these things just record sort of flight data, sort of the metadata of your driving. right? And an uh, a data recording system in an ambulance might be in communication with a network of some sort. Mm-hmm. But typically in your average consumer vehicle, they're not talking to anyone.
0: No, it's recording simply within your vehicle itself. Yep. And ultimately, that system might end up helping you as a, a driver. Let's say that you are driving a vehicle that suffers a mechanical failure that's mm-hmm. a manufacturing problem. Yep, And it's recorded in there so that anything that happens, maybe maybe you have an accident. And hopefully it's one that doesn't result in injury. But you have an accident that affects your car and it's due to a manufacturing problem. And that was recorded on that black box. You're going to be thankful for that. Mm -hmm. Right. As opposed to someone saying, oh, you're a careless driver.
1: Yeah. And it's important for ambulances to have that because they are statistically more likely to be involved in an accident. Oh, sure. Because they
0: are they are entering areas that are uh, already dangerous. They are also having to go through. You know intersections they have to go through heavy traffic mm-hmm. at times they have to go through opposing traffic at times mm-hmm. this is obviously putting themselves at a higher risk for that sort of thing
1: so much respect for these so guys. i
0: see you got an interesting little um little little blurb here and then we're wrapping oh, up so I, do, little, do we have
1: time for it let's do it yeah. oh, okay all right well first off thank you for for having me on it's always a pleasure um we we added some stuff uh folks under what we called fascinating but not totally necessary facts and we both have one yes uh, uh mine is that in Oct- as of October 2014 Dubai is home to what they call the world's fastest ambulance it's a refitted Lotus Evora it can travel up to 185 miles per hour and they have a couple of other things they're working on which we'll save for later episodes
0: so a Lotus Evora is a sports car. Yes. Do you know if they actually transport patients, or is this just to get responders
1: to a patient? I think it's because I was looking at this. Um, yeah. And I think that there might be a way for them to strap somebody onto it. What? Yeah. But, uh, but <laughs> folks,
0: I, you need to do a Google image yeah, search. yeah. yeah but
1: I don't. I don't think. Just to dispel it, I think it's it's more for them to show up on the scene and do treatment on the scene or donuts in the parking lot Who or knows? donuts in the parking this lot This
0: thing look I mean it's going fast standing still right, right. I mean that's that's, that's what this thing is doing mm-hmm. and all the medical equipment is in the the quote unquote trunk of this vehicle if you've ever had a sports car or ridden right. in a sports car you know trunks are that's being generous but but its rear mm. storage compartment is filled with medical equipment uh I and there's really I mean, if you have two responders, then there's no room for a patient. There's,
1: yeah, I just don't see how that's my problem with it. I don't see how you could attach somebody. Right. Yeah, it.
0: unless you strap them to the top christmas tree style which i don't think i would recommend
1: not a doctor either but i don't think that's the idea but but what's your what's your uh fascinating fact so
0: we do have one article on how stuff works that relates to ambulances that popped up <laughs> <laughs> and this one just amused me because it popped up and i was like well i'm, I'm gonna include this because it's ridiculous but it was a uh, one about uh really bizarre car uh races and they talked about how on spike tv's carpocalypse which keep in mind this is for a, a like almost like a reality game show sort of thing. They had a crazy race that involved ambulances called a chain race. Now, a chain race is when you have two vehicles, one towing the other with a chain, Mm -hmm. but you have drivers in both vehicles. So the driver in the front vehicle is the one providing all the power and making turns and stuff. The driver in the back vehicle is trying their best to maintain control over their unpowered but still very rapidly moving vehicle so that when they're going <laughs> around turns and stuff, they're not slinging way off to the side. And the winner of the quote-unquote race is whichever vehicle still you know, is able to complete it and still be towing their respective car behind them. Wow. So these were ambulances towing other cars, and they had two-person teams, one person behind the wheel of the ambulance, one behind the wheel of the car.
1: I have to tell Scott about that one. It was
0: kind of terrifying. I actually watched some some uh, excerpts, and and it was pretty crazy. And it was on a circular track, so it was all about spinning out. You know, mm-hmm. like they would they would take a turn, and the person in the back, you know, they they have very limited vision of what yeah. they can see. They're, most of their vision is taken up by the back of an ambulance, and so they're they're trying to, their best to kind of move with it. But if they swung out too wide, it would cause the whole thing to spin out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of spectacular. So, yeah, that's uh that's the lowdown on ambulances. And uh I, you know, I think once we see more technology be proven, uh, you know, have its worth proven in the field, we'll see it make its way into ambulances. I don't again, I don't disagree with taking time to make sure that that's there. I, I as someone who loves technology, my first instinct often is to adopt something first mm-hmm. and then. Hope that the value plays out, but you don't want to do that when people's lives are at stake.
1: So right. Yeah. I,
0: I have no problem with it taking some time. I mean, obviously, there's the frustration because if something could be saving lives, you want it to be out there. Mm-hmm. But you have to prove that that could is is real.
1: And ambulance is being so varied. It's obvious to me, and although I will admit this is an assumption, I think it's a fair one that. Ambulances also have wildly differing ranges of equipment with levels of sophistication. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, surely there are ambulances that have the insta-burn graft kind of technology. Yeah, like
0: the spray on skin. Right. Crazy crazy stuff that, that, you know.
1: That could use some more time to be proven. Yeah.
0: Again, it's not one of those those cookie cutter type things Mm -hmm. where a standard model, like you don't get the standard ambulance and standard uh, ambulance response team. That just ends up being, you know, uh, put out through all of the world as as this is what we use from here on out. There is it's definitely a gradient. Yeah, (laughs) maybe
1: maybe one day we'll get to that standard. And uh, if we do, Lee, uh, you're going to be one of the first people I write to about it, because I thought this was an excellent suggestion. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you for being on,
0: Ben. I really appreciate it. And that wraps up another classic episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please let me know. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is Tech Stuff HSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,